Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. I hope you're excited to be here because I am as well. This is going to be a blowout podcast. So much to talk about. Incredible Milrose Games is in the books, and America has a new distance star in Ellie Perrier. We're going to get you ready for this week's USA Indoor Championships. We're so be doubling. So much other stuff to talk about. Incredible reporting coming out of Canada. Top coach has gone down. Let's run. We would not be having a podcast if we didn't talk about the Vaporflies. We're going to have a 15-minute interview with Hoka Aggies head coach Joe Rubio. That and much, much more. Maybe We said last week we promised Iowa caucuses. Maybe we'll talk about that. But John's got an Oscars rant. I promise you we'll get to that. And most importantly of all, the baby moon is over. Weldon Johnson, my co-founder, is back from the baby moon. But this is LetsRun.com co-founder Robert Johnson. And if you want to reach us, folks, unlike Twitter, unlike Facebook, just pick up the phone. 844-LET'S-RUN. 844-538-7786 is how you reach us. And this week's podcast is brought to you by Hoka. They are sponsoring a month-long exploration of the marathon trials. There's been some crazy stuff on there, some really great profiles we've had in the last uh, few days, and that's going to be continuing. Have you read about Swanjit Boyle, the Indian-American who was cut from his high school team, from his college team twice, is now at the trials? Or how about the cancer researcher that we have on there today, Liza Reichert? Incredible stuff. Now, Robert, are we going to let Weldon back on the podcast? I think we did the last two without him. They both seem to be pretty good. You got space for your rants and for your shoe takes. Uh, is he going to come back on? What do you think? Uh, I personally would like to get rid of him. I've been living in his shadow for my entire life. I talked to a prominent author last week, running with the Buffaloes off for Chris Leary. He said the podcast is really tightening up. And I think it's because we only have two people to talk about, John. Plus, breaking news. I need my breaking news music. Unfortunately, I don't have it ready, queued up on my phone. Folks, big, big news. This You're listening to the number two ranked podcast, running podcast in Singapore. First Singapore, next the world. All right, Weldon, what do you think? Should we let you back on the show? Well, I'm sure ratings are down. I haven't checked the numbers. But I listened last week, and it was pretty good. I enjoyed it on the baby moon. You guys had some good stuff. Good analysis. I thought John's take on the baby moon was pretty interesting, that we should go on the baby moon before there's even a baby or a pregnancy. You know, I'm not sure. That's called a vacation, John. But what a week for running. I mean, I picked the week to go away. Milrose Games held on my my track. It's my indoor track, the Armory, where I used to live. You know, I live probably two miles from the Armory. I go away for a weekend, miss a Milrose, and I miss... One, two, three American records. And it was pretty crazy, the whole Milrose thing. Because I, I, I expected a couple American records. I checked the 800. Here's how I, I saw Milrose results. I was in Paris. I pull up the 800. I see Donovan Brazier breaks the American record. I'm just kind of like, ho-hum. Then I realized the meet was still on. So don't ask me how. I pulled up the meet on my phone, got it working through a VPN, NBC Gold. The Wanamaker mile was going, men's mile. Mm, Ho-hum. Chris O'Hare, easy victory. And then I was like, okay, I need to look for some more results. I, I checked the forums. I saw Nico Young had the record. I checked the women's 800. I'm like, oh, that's supposed to be good. Ajay Wilson, American record. I'm like, ah, uh, ho-hum. Kind of expected. And then I start texting you guys, and you're like, black page, black page for Ellie Purrier or what? And I'm like, what are they talking about? A black page for what? 
And I checked the woman's mile record, and I almost, like, fell out of my chair. I mean, we have a new American star, ladies and gentlemen. That was out of nowhere. Ellie Perrier, three... What? I'm, I'm converting. 416 mile? That's nuts. 416.85. It took down the longest-standing American record on the books on the women's side. Mary Decker Slaney, 1982 is how long that record had stood since... And now it's gone. It's also the second fastest mile ever indoors by anyone from any country. It's the second fastest mile by an American indoors or outdoors. Crazy stuff. And this is a woman, remember, she was running the steeple until, you know, her last couple of years in college. She tri- switched over. That's the pulling the Jenny Simpson right there. Yeah, absolutely outstanding run. And she beat, it's not like she beat a bunch of spares, as Weldon would say. You know, look at the people she beat in this. World Championship medalist Constance Klosterhalfen. 417 for second. That's a German record. Gemma Riki, who last week just ran 157 for 800, which is the fastest indoor 800 since 2006. She got third in a British record of 417. And then Gabriella Debus Stafford, who is a 356-1500 woman, she got fourth in 419.73. Nikki Hiltz, World Championship finalist, blown away. She was fifth place in 424, but she was eight seconds behind Ellie Paria. I mean, just an incredible run for a woman who grew up in a farm in Vermont. I was checking YouTube comments and Twitter and stuff. People talk about her milking cows. Doesn't get much better than that. But spares, John. This might be the... It's the greatest woman's mile ever indoors, right? I mean, there was three national records behind her. This was far from spares. This was super competitive, and I think that's why... Well, I don't know. I've still only seen the last quarter of the race. So you guys can tell me, but I think the competition... That's what spurred things to such a great time. I mean, I'm sure the pacing was really good as well. It wasn't but- the competition. It was Coco. It was Constance Klosterhalf, and she knew the one way she was going to win this race is basically what she did last year when she blew everyone away. Remember, last year, she raced some good women and just totally smoked them and ran 419. It, was, it wasn't even close over the second half. This one, Klosterhalf, and ran two seconds faster than she did in 2019, and you know she ended up getting out kicked. She ran a really great race as well. You know, if, if Paria had had now kicked to Klosterhoff and well, we'd still probably be talking about Paria because it's a breakout run. But really good stuff from Klosterhoff. And, and just for some context for how great this was, Danny Jones of Colorado runs 427 for seventh place. That's a collegian. It's one of the fastest collegiate indoor miles ever. 427.88. And she just got rolled. She lost by over 10 seconds. I wa- saw Jones walking off the track. I'm like, man, she didn't do that well. I'm like, wait a minute. She just ran 427. It's just that gets distorted because the winning time was 416. It was just an incredible, incredible race. John, seems like you're doing revisionist history. Have you issued a formal apology to Ms. Perrier? Last week on this very podcast, you listed the potential winners. She was not mentioned of the as one of them. Please apologize to Let's Run Nation. No, everyone got that wrong. Um, but, you know, the. What also made it special was the fact that she wins. If she doesn't win the race, it's just not nearly as cool. You know, I, I knew they were running fast on the last lap. She was in fourth. And then coming to the last turn, I'm like, wait, she's moving up. And then she's, I go, she's going to get this. So amazing. Fast time and the victory. But, John, you talked about Coco. I mean, she deserves huge props. She was basically the rabbit. She kept this pace going. Now, according to Craig Mosbeck, at least on the telecast, this is not what her coach wanted him, you know, what, what, um, the coach wanted her to do. He wanted her to practice kicking. So thank God she didn't, because then we wouldn't be talking about this mile if it was a sit and kick race. So it may have been stupid for her long-term development, but thank you, Coco. Well, I think the debate now, 
with Puria. So we've got a showdown with Shelby Houlihan this weekend in Albuquerque at USA's. They're both entered in both the 15 and 3K. Houlihan has said she intends to run both. 3K is first on Friday. The Puria, we don't know for sure what she's doing, but at least one of those races she'll run. What I'm interested, though, moving forward to outdoors, what event should Ellie Puria focus on? Last year, she runs the 5,000 meters at the World Championships. She runs a couple of PR. She runs a PR in the final of 1458. That places her 11th in Doha. Can I, can I just cut you off? This is like the dumbest conversation ever. What event is she going to run? 1,500. There's just no debate here, John. Like, why would she run the 5K? 1458 is so far from world-class. You have to be able to run 1420 to be world-class. She just showed she's world-class in the 1500, has metal potential. So unless you're going to tell me she's a 1430 5K woman, which no American has ever been so far, why would she run the 5K? She doesn't even... I would say her powerful build is more of a 1500 runner. She's like Shelby Houlihan. Run the 1500. Do the 5K as a backup. Like, what are we talking about here? Like, this is just like, move them up in distance? No. I have a method to my madness. Now, I acknowledge. The United- are you vouching for the 5K? I'm arguing for the 5K. The Initially, I was like you, Weldon. I spoke to some of my Irish buddies. I spoke to Carl Dennehy and Phelan Kelly. I think Carl basically won me to this his side, and I'll give you his argument in a minute. But first of all, the women's 5,000 is essentially a wasteland for the U.S. They've never had any success in it, never medaled in the Olympics or Worlds in that event. But let me run off. Here are the results from the World Championship 1,500-meter final last year in Doha. One, Sifan Hassan, 3.51. Two, Faith Kipigon, 3.54. Three, Gudolf Sagai, 3.54. Four, Shelby Houlihan, 3.54. Five, Laura Muir, 3.55. Six, Gabrielle Debu Stafford, 3.56. Shelby Houlihan ran over a second faster than any American has ever run and did not even medal at the World Championships last year, Weldon. This event, comparatively, is so much stronger than the 5,000. You're saying, like, she essentially has to be in 3.54 shape. To medal at the Olympics, do you? I'm just not convinced that she can do that. She can drop off three seconds after already dropping off a massive amount. John's got a point here in the sense of his argument seems to be the five, the 1500 stacked. But John, look, Americans in the 5000 are basically 20 seconds. I would normally say 20 seconds away from meddling. But I mean, when we started this conversation, I thought John has lost it. He should be fired from Let'sRun.com. Well, then here's one thing I'm thinking about as I'm doing the research. I don't like this. I want her in the 1500. But do you know who medaled in the 5,000 this year? Constance Coco. effing Klosterhalfen, who she just outkicked in a 1,500. Now, the point is, though, the only reason, John, she medaled was because the IAAF, World Athletics, the Olympics, these people are so stupid. They can't figure out a way to make the schedule so that you can do the 1,500 and 5,000 double. I mean, to me, Klosterhalfen is, well, she did run 1,426. First of all, Puria, John, is miles away from running 1,426. She's nowhere close to that. Yeah, but I think she can run faster than 14.58 because I think she just showed she's fitter than she was last year. She's been doing 5K-oriented training. If she can get into the 14.40s and it's a little slower at world... No, no. If she can get into the 14.40s, she's completely uncompetitive in that event. You need to get down in the 14.20s. She's not capable of doing that. She'll get a blown door away. Kosterhofen has run 14.26. She medaled. Did she get a bronze? The only reason she medaled, though, was because the other people didn't do this event because you couldn't double. I mean, where was 
you don't think Letzenet Gaday can run a 14-20? Of course she can. She, you know, she, she's run 14-20. She just didn't run it at Worlds. So, I mean, she's not going to beat Gaday if she doubles back. She's not going to beat um, Hassan if Hassan's in there. Right? Uh, well, guess what, Robert? The 15-5K double impossible at the Olympics this year. The 1500 final. I think the pre, one of the prelims is on the same day. They have a race. You have to race both events on the same day. It's not doable. Okay, well, it is doable. You could run two on the same day. It's it, you're saying it's not doable. No, no, it's it's no. You you that to be coaching malpractice to ask them to run a heats and final on the same day at the Olympics, Robert. That's moronic. Fifteen hundred prelim in the morning and a five thousand final at night. I think you could do that. But anyways, let, let's go on this world athletics. What are you doing? What is your job? How hard is it to get the fifteen hundred and five thousand on the same day? I do not. I mean, double doable. At the same world. I don't like it how some of these events, it's always generally, particularly the 5,000 people, the best 5,000 people don't end up in the race half the time. Holly Gebersolesi never did the 5,000 at the Olympics. I mean, we need the best people in the 5,000. I don't want her running the 5,000, John, out of the hope that the oh, four of the top seven people won't show up and then she'll sneak a bronze medal. Right. If she becomes a 1435K runner, let's have this conversation. And if she's not, like, what's the point? She could run it, okay, let's say Worlds is weak and she finishes, like, fifth place. Never a factor. I, I would much rather I would much rather be in the 1500 with thinking going in, like, I'm a th- 356 girl. I got a shot at a medal. I could conceivably win this thing, ignoring Hassan. Whatever event Hassan wins, nobody's going to beat if she's at her best. So and the, the prestige, the prestige of the fifteen hundred. I guess after the mile, who you know, if she get, if you get a medal, I guess nobody cares what color, what event your medal was. You're an Olympic medalist, but I think it's going to be almost impossible to pass up the fifteen hundred. Uh, I wonder what the double is like at USA's because people double very doable fifteen hundred first. Okay, then she'll do both of the trials. There's no question about that because, like Chris Linsky, he's not an Olympian, right? I mean, you got to make sure you, you get on an Olympic team. Yeah, that's right. But no, he, here's the other point that Carl raised to me, and I agree with him. I don't think Paria has proven that she has the closing speed to be a championship 5K medalist on the global stage. What did she close her this mile in? Uh, it was 62-16 for her last quarter. I don't know. It's weird. These splits, they're giving us quarter mile splits. I just, she doesn't seem like a Houlihan who is an 800 type who has that real top end speed. I mean, kicking against Houlihan and Hassan, who's a 156 woman, and Kipyagon, I mean, we've seen it the last couple of years in Doha. Jenny Simpson, I view like Purrier is pretty similar to Jenny Simpson. They were in the same fitness last year. Jenny Simpson wasn't even competitive in that 1500 because she didn't have the speed to run three, she didn't have the, you know, overall strength to run 354. And I don't think she had the closing speed, you know, in a tactical race against those women either. I mean, her tactics, yes, would be great, but I'm just not, I haven't seen it from Ellie Puria. Her 800 PR is 8203. Can she please show that she can close in a championship 1500? But, but John, you think she's got the closing speed in the 5K? In a slow like- race, yes, because she just outkicked a woman who meddled last year in a 1500. Yeah. But she still outkicked her. She has better closing speed. You could argue she could outkick Coco, and if she yes, she has to build up her endurance. I don't think she's going to medal in either event. But I'd love to see her in the fifteen in the five k. And I think she, you know, if she has, she can build up her strength. This is laughable, John. 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 This is laughable. She can't outkick Coco in a fourteen twenty eight race because she can't. No, run that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But you think? All right. You think she's okay, but, John? Give, John. So- 
Give me the scenario she medals in the Olympic 1500. What kind of race is she going to do that in? John, let's change the change this how we're looking at this real quick. Let's just use I don't know men. Uh uh-uh, women aren't going to like this. Give me a 5K guy, Drew Hunter. Drew Hunter's more of a 5K guy. I mean, he's pretty good at 15 too. Drop him down to the 1500, and some 1500 guy outkicks him. I don't know somebody like Eric Avila. So. 1500 guy outkicks Drew Hunter at, at the mile, wins some impressive race. You're telling me now that like Eric Avila, when you move him up to the 5K, is going to beat Drew Hunter and outkick him at Worlds in a fast? And no, not a fast race. But you're assuming it's a fast race. You're also assuming that Avila is going to get top three in the 1500, which he's probably not. And well, then you didn't answer my question. What kind of race is Ellie Paria going to medal in at the Olympics? Because I don't see that she has the top end speed, and I don't think she'd run 354 if it goes like what Safan Hassan did last year. John, let me interrupt. I'll answer the question for them. This is easy. In any normal 1500 race at Worlds, when you're in 357 shape, that generally medals. You go out and run 357, and you medal. No, 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 no. If you run 357 at Worlds, you are probably in much better than 357 shape, Robert. Running 357 at Worlds is incredibly difficult to do. That's why it doesn't happen every year. Well, right. Normally, if you're in 357 shape, you medal. Please tell me in what world, in what type of race, does a 1458 5,000-meter runner medal ever in Worlds in any type of race? The, the idea, John, you're Emily Infeld medaled at the 2015 World Championships in 10K, Robert. Yes, in a fluke year when no one, again, when no fluke one runs happen. it. When no one runs it. So she should run an event that she's really not that good at and just hope that the Africans don't bother to run it because they're all in the marathon making roads. The schedule is not conducive to doubling for the 1500. So again, let's run an event and hope that none of the Africans run because they'd rather run the, the, the Falmouth road race and pick up $7,000 instead of running the Olympics and meddling. I mean, John, please. She's totally uncompetitive in the 5,000. Get back to me when she breaks 1430. Then we can have her run the 5,000. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. John, you're on suspension for the rest of the podcast, maybe for the week, maybe for the month for the show. I know. Well, we've already bought his ticket to the trials. I guess he can go to the trials. (laughs) He'll probably join one of these unions, you know, these writers unions that exist. But the joke's on you because we just got 10 minutes of great content by me taking up an opposing position to you guys, which... I kind of happen oh. to believe it. I'm sorry. She hasn't proven that she has the speed yet. So this is good. J- John, there's no way John sincerely held that belief. I think this is turning into like Stephen A or something where somebody takes a belief they don't believe just to like get ranting. No, I mean, John just replaced himself. He told us who we should hire. He was just like, well, Cathal told me this. Cathal Dennehy. Cathal Dennehy, Irish journalist. We're just going to fire John and hire Cathal. He's Probably- the one who gave inception this idea. Into well, I know, but at least, we're, at, least we're getting an origi- at least we're getting an original idea, not one that you stole from somebody else. <laughs> exactly. It's not stealing if I credit them. People say we need more diversity on the podcast, and John is an half American. We need less Americans. That'll be our, our inclusion for diversity. We'll first go for an Irish person. That's uh, not. That's not how the woke generation will see it. Well, then they'll see that we switched out one white guy for an even older white guy, and they'll be all pissed about it. Okay, can we turn to another event at Melrose? There were other events at Melrose, really. I then was going through my phone. Oh no! Then you guys did the splash page, and I checked out the splash page, and you've got the finish of the men's eight hundred meters. OMG. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time ever, I, I I was like, holy shit, he could break the world record. I totally viewed the American record by Donovan Brazier completely differently. He ran 144 and he went out in 53. Is that right? That's correct. 53.04. I mean, let's just be honest. Closed here. in 24, the final 200? 
Donovan Brazier was, pardon my French, fucking around for the last 600, really. And that was on purpose. I actually think it was, it was like Robert said in the week that was, it was great coaching by Pete Julian telling him, look, get in a bad position. Try to work your way out of it. This is what indoors is for. He understands that it's all about the Olympics. But he, he's screwing around, and then he just makes this one move. And he's not against up against scrubs here, either. Bryce Hopper was fourth in the World Championships last year. He's having a great indoor season himself. He's just been overshadowed. He runs an indoor PB of 145.7, which is pretty great, you know, this time of year. Brazier makes him look like he's running in quicksand. I mean, 24.89 for the last lap indoors. And the way he, he unfolds his stride and just pumps those arms, it is a sight to behold. It's absolutely magnificent. It re- really amazing stuff from Brazier. Yeah, it was it was a great, I mean, just a crazy race. And I thought it was really impressive that it's Coach Pete Julian told him, we want you to learn how to run in a pack, go out in a pack, don't leave drone front run. Well, if you got that much left at the end of the race, it doesn't really matter where you are. I was so shocked when I just saw the... That's how he got the record. I mean, he just crushed everyone. Like Bryce Hopple was like, looked like he's running slow, and he ran a pretty good race. And I, I guess should we get our Alberto segment in now? I mean, I guess Alberto wasn't his coach, but like, who? Alberto, who? Do we even need Alberto anymore? Pete seems to be doing a really good job. I, I thought it was interesting that Pete, you know, told Donovan to have this different outlook, try this different race. Well, they remember this isn't new. They were trying this in Boston last year as well indoors. Like they use the indoor season to really drill down on tactics, and I think you know that's exactly what as an eight hundred runner, it's exactly what you should be doing. That's what Bryce Hopple. This is why coming through the NCAA system, I know that Brazier didn't do do that. He only ran one year in the NCAA, but Hopple last year in Kansas, he got all this experience racing and winning in so many different ways, and that really helped you know as make the transition to the professional ranks smoothly because you just get so much experience running in you know, different positions and running on different tracks and that sort of thing. I think it's really helpful. So, John, what was Brazier's... How were him and Perrier after the race? And I didn't listen to what they said, but sort of what was their mood? Was Perrier in shock? Perrier was shocked. She was just sort of still taking time to process it. She didn't even know what the American record was beforehand. She wasn't even on her mind and i was asking her like well does this change about what you think about the 1500 and 5k she's like i just ran the race i'm still deciding but uh, i think she knew she was pretty fit i don't think she knew she was that fit and getting that win it was it was pretty crazy for her brazier it was more of like you know he was in a good mood and he was just so he he tries to i think he tries to navigate sort of the line of being humble with also like knowing how good he is and yeah, he was just like, you know, Pete t- told me to get in a bad position and practice and, sorry, and practice tactics. He he was pretty happy with how it went. And then that last lap, he, I was like, dude, but 24-8, like that last 200, he's like, well, yeah, the first three laps were slow. So I'm not really surprised I can close that fast. It's like, I don't know, running in any 800, closing in a 24-8, I don't care how fast those first three laps were. That's still pretty tough to do indoors. It was just phenomenal. All right, John, what I want to know about Milrose is, who got the biggest ovations? Who were the biggest stars pre-race when they introduced the runners? Which distance stars did you view as getting the largest ovations? Because I, I, you said something to me offline that was interesting. Yeah, the two people who really stood out to me were not a distance runner. Allison Felix. Uh, she's been around the sport forever. People went crazy for her in the 60. And Donovan Brazier. 
And there's something about just when you were introduced before a race and you have the name world champion next to, you know, next to your name, that is different for fans. They'll see, they're like, oh my God, this is the best guy in the entire world in this event. And he's a growing star. And it's interesting, uh, Phelan Kelly, the Irish coach who I was speaking about earlier, I spent some time with him and he was talking to, I think they'd brought some, there was like a 12-year-old Irish, I think it was an Irish girl, or maybe six, I don't know. She was pretty young. She'd come over to watch the meet and they were asking her who was she was most excited to see and who she really wanted to meet. And she said Donovan Brazier. And I think, I don't know if it was before or after the race, probably after with how, how amazingly he ran. But this guy, he's one of the most popular distance runners in America right now. And you could tell the world title obviously helps, but also just the way he runs. He's always you know, pretty happy and smiling after these races and interviews and mixed zones. He's a pretty personable kid when he, and he used to, you know, sometimes when he was younger and he had some uh, failures at the, you know, professional level his first year or two. Uh, he'd get a little upset after those races, but he's, I think he's matured and he's also just hasn't had many races gone badly and he so he's usually in a good mood he's pretty talkative in the mix zone i think this he's pretty much the total package in terms of what you want from an american distance star enough Milrose talk guys let's preview this weekend's usa indoor championships it's been a good couple weeks for let's run a lot's been going on a lot to talk about plus we've been saving a ton of money with the cancellation of world indoors i made the executive decision not to send anyone to usa's which may be a mistake actually because there's some good fields now but since it doesn't mean anything, Albuquerque is so expensive too. I decided we're not going there. I did send John a little two hundred dollar cash to have some fun on Saturday night in New York. John, hope you didn't embarrass yourself or anything like that. But um, oh, you you haven't seen the you haven't seen the police logs yet. Then yeah. uh, I guess that's a good thing. I'm looking at the document that we used to sort of outline the show. It's got the USA previews. I don't see Brazier's name on there. Hey, we just spent a half hour praising him, and now we're going to have to rip him for skipping USA. Robert, I have some bad news. He's not running the U.S. championships. This is a joke. Why not? I guess I'm not bothered to go, but hey, he's a professional athlete. He said after the race, I asked him if he was running. He's like, well, if I do a workout after Milrose, then I'm not going to run USA's. And if I don't do a workout, I'll run USA's, which sounded like a kind of a silly way to determine it. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. I, I mean... I think we know what would happen. He's going to win the race. I'm more curious, just like how close could he get to the world record? But the one silver lining from that is that the 800 will now be more interesting with Hopple versus Isaiah Harris because they were pretty close at Milrose. That I think they're fairly close in ability right now. But yeah, it's a bummer not to see Brazier at USA's. John, I beg to differ. A race without Jonathan Brazier isn't more interesting. The race obviously be more interesting if he was in it. But fair. That's a fair point. The the who might win is more in doubt now. Yeah, but Robert wanted to skip off Milrose, someone who will be competing at USA's did set an American record at Milrose, and that's Ajay Wilson. We just sort of take her for granted, and granted, she did run faster what two years ago at, at Milrose three when years she ago. three years ago when she ate tainted beef afterwards and got, got a drug suspension. Or was it a suspension or just her null- results? That nullified? result was a null. She wasn't banned. So, Ajay Wilson, we just sort of take it for granted. But I wasn't, you know, she had only run one other 800 this year and hadn't run that fast in it and broken two. And to come out and break an American record, I thought that was good. And she's taking on her teammate and world championship silver medalist. 
Raven Rogers in the 800. So, I mean, I think this and Hannah Green. So this, this is the top matchup at USA's, I think. No, no, no. Houlihan versus Puria. Yeah, I'm taking it back, actually. My take about Puria, if she comes out and outkicks Shelby Houlihan twice in two days at the USA's, that might just win me over to Team 15. That probably proves she has the closing speed. Though I'm not sure what kind of shape Houlihan's in right now. Yeah, should we just cancel that whole segment we just had on Perrier's <laughs> kick and just see how she does versus Houlihan this week? And That's probably and, a good idea. Okay, we'll take back everything we said. If Houlihan gets outkicked by Perrier, I mean, that, this is great that they're rating the... But, well, actually, let's remember this, though. Colleen Quigley outkicked Shelby Houlihan last year at USA's to win the mile title, and I don't think anyone would argue that Quigley should move to the 1500. Whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, let me get in here. It's hard. I mean, with three people on the podcast, we got to get rid of one of you. People want to hear Rojo. Let me get some words in here. First of all, while I'm most excited about Raven Rogers, I mean, excuse me, versus, I mean, against, but seeing Ellie Perry versus Shelby Houlihan and the international stage, a bigger matchup in terms of accomplishments is going to be Raven Rogers versus AJ Wilson. Raven last week, I think it's smart. I think Garrett Thompson has had them not racing in the same meets on purpose. Um, Raven ran at Camel City on the flat track. She only beat Canada's Lindsay Butterworth by 0.1 of a second. It is a flat track, 203.15 to 203.25. Um, so I'm obviously going to go with AJ here in this in this matchup. But, you know, I, I think that Rogers, Wilson, Hannah Green, from a world standpoint, that's probably uh, slightly higher than the women's 1,500. Well, Robert, Robert, you've neglected to mention that we have an American record holder and reigning United States champion in the women's 800. Do you remember who it is? A Thing Moo. A Thing Mo, yeah. She's entered in the 800 as well. She also raced Camel City last weekend, was third in 204.08. So, I mean, I, again, I'm not into hyping teenage female phenoms until they PR into at their late teens. So I don't want to get too excited about her. But let's go through USA's event by event. 800, Hopple versus Harris. Plus, don't forget... Drew Wendell, former World Indoor Silver Medalist. Um, I, I think that Hoppel has clearly established himself as the guy to beat there because what we're not going to have in that event is, it's interesting to me, we've got Clayton Murphy. He's running the 1500. So he ran the 800 at Camel City last week. and Actually, he did the 800 and mile, won the 800 um, first, and destroying Craig Ingalls, who will be in the 1500 at USA's. So in the 1500 USA's, we're going to have Clayton Murphy, Craig Ingalls, Josh Thompson, and then the wild card, Willie Fink. He ran at Eastern Michigan, right? He's now running for the district track club. What did he do last weekend at Campbell City on the flat track? Took down Edward Cheswick. Now, Cheswick's pro career is not going as many of us would have expected, I don't think, but he ran fast in Hawaii in December. He had won, or he had run pretty well in the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix 3000. Shocking to me that he loses to Fink. Interesting to see, can Fink mix it up with these big boys? But John, of those people, who do you like? I think the case can can be made for all of them. Thompson, Ingalls, Murphy, or Fink. Who's your pick? Josh Thompson. Uh, I really liked what I saw from him outdoors at USA's, and I guess that's silly to say, considering Craig Engels beat him in that race pretty handily. But Engels, to me, hasn't looked terrific indoors so far. You know, he, he wasn't very competitive in that 800 at Camel City. Uh, I, I think Thompson, I liked how he looked at BU a couple weeks ago. I do think it's either him, or, and 
Murphy bounced back very well at Camel City. I think he looked a lot better than he did in Boston. So I think it's one of those three angles, Thompson or Murphy. Uh, I'm going to put my chips on Josh Thompson, though. Does anyone dare to disagree? I just don't think there's a lot of concern about who's going to win the men's 1500 at USA Indoors this year. We got bigger, bigger thing, bigger fish to worry about, John. I mean, this is, but it's the meet this weekend. You just saying, oh, I don't care who wins because it's not the Olympics. I mean, it's a national championship. There's some pretty good guys. You're just gonna forget about it because it's not the Olympic Games. Yeah, it's true. Do people rather would they rather have us looking forward or discussing what happened last week? I guess a lot of times, you know, a lot of it's about the anticipation of this week's games. I just don't see Josh Thompson winning. I don't know. Someone else will beat him. Okay, so you're taking the field over Josh Thompson. He's right. never won a USA's, right? No. Yeah, so he's not winning. Craig Engels hadn't won a USA. All right, the new rule. No one who has won... If you haven't won USA's before, you can never win USA's moving forward. Craig Engels, you know, I don't know how he did it last year at USA Indoors because he'd never won USA's before. But uh, To me, this is a very interesting race. I think Clayton Murphy has a decision he needs to make. What is he going to do at the trials? I guess he could probably do the 8 and 15 double at the trials. John, have we looked at the schedule? But, you know, if, if he – I kind of actually think – I still think Murphy should be running the 800 at Worlds. I think that's his best bet to be a, a player on the world scene. But I actually think he's going to be doing himself a disservice. If he wins this race this weekend in the 1500, he may think, oh, I should do the 1500. So unless the double is doable at, at the USA Outdoor Championships, again, he's sort of being caught in between here. Good, good point. I'm so sick of Clayton Murphy. Everybody's saying he should run the 15. People should move up. John wants Perrier running the 5K, probably wants Murphy running the 1500. The 800 is his event. Until he's no longer competitive in it, he should be running the 800 in the international stage. The guy has an Olympic medal. He's very His strength, which helps him in the rounds, but he's done nothing to show that he's a world-class 1500-meter runner. So I kind of agree with Robert. If he wins this, it might make him think, oh, I'm a 1500-meter runner, but I, I still hope he's focusing on the 800. I don't know what the double's like at USA, so... But I think internationally, the best chances is a, is still the eight for him. No, I agree. This is, look, remember he ran very well on the circuit last year. He made the final. He had a stinker in the world championship final, but that happens. And fifteen hundred, I think Clayton, you guys aren't giving him enough credit. He knows he's been sort of this tweener type for his whole career. I don't think just one race against some guys in February, middle of February, is going to convince him. Oh, I need to be running fifteen hundred. Uh, I think he'll he'll probably eight hundred is the best bet, and I think he'll probably plan to stay there. Moving forward. All right, let's look. We looked at the fifteen, the fifteen hundred. We looked at the eight hundreds. Women's fifteen hundred. Well, I guess let's start with women's three k because this one's first. Houlihan Paria. What do you guys think? And could someone else drop in and contend? You know, we we also in that race have Colleen Quigley. We have Courtney Frerichs. We've got Carissa Schweizer, Ali Ostrander, who won the three k at Milrose. Is it a two horse race? How do you guys see this one playing out? I don't know what Houlihan's done this year indoors, but without thinking about it, Houlihan wins. Without even you know looking up those numbers, I would well, I'm asking still you picking her. About it. I'm still picking her. Tell me what she's run this year. I'm still picking her. She she did a double at, at Washington. She ran two hundred one for the eight hundred and four twenty three for the mile. She's a fourteen thirty something five thousand meter runner. I think with John. I think John's right. I think she. I think Weldon's right. I think she wins the three thousand. Um, if they both show up there. Which but is first? The one day. That's why we're talking about it. That's Friday. The one caveat I had here is, even if she doesn't win, that doesn't mean she's not a better runner than Perrier. 
Remember, Colleen Quigley, as John said earlier in this podcast, beat her last year at USA's in a shocking upset in the mile. So, um, yeah, I, I just... Yeah, I know it's a national championship, but I'm not going to render lasting judgments on people based on what they do on February 14th. And you, you guys did mention one name, John, Ali Ostrander. Looking at the Melrose results, that was another thing that surprised me. I'm very surprised she won a pro 3000. I thought that was a very big win for her. I mean, I don't... It was a PR. I don't know what her OPR was, but she's got to show that she can compete at the pro level. Granted, she did make the world championship team last year, but she kind of snuck in that in the steeple. So sneaking on a U.S. team and, and being a competitor at, at the top of the U.S. are different things. So it be interesting to see what she does in this race. And then we've, we've also got the 1500, which is essentially going to have pretty much the same cast of characters, Houlihan, Puria. Schweizer and Quigley are all set to double back at the moment. They could scratch out of there. Shannon Oseekers and Rachel Schneider. You know, are we just saying whoever wins the 3K is going to win the 1500? Because that didn't happen last year, but I feel like it probably will happen this year. Is Quigley just in the mile? No, she's in the, she's double entered. And there's no Jenny Simpson, correct? Correct. So, well, first of all, I think we're sleeping on Colleen Quigley here. It wouldn't shock me at all if she beats Ellie Perrier once or twice this weekend. She's run 844 for 3,000 this year. That's pretty good. So, you know, Weldon talked about Ostrander. The time wasn't that fast. It was 848. It was basically a college field that she beat in Milrose. I'm not saying – I mean, I, I was pleased that she won. It was a good step forward. But get back to me when she gets to the level of Colleen Quigley. Um so it's those the, 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 it's just really interesting to see these women race each other this week, and I can't wait to see the outcome. All right, final distance event, men's three thousand, top entrance: Paul Chalimo, the Olympic silver medalist; Hillary Bohr, Ryan Hill, Willie Fink. <laughs> uh, I, I actually, actually, I actually am interested. This is going to be a good test for Willie Fink against these guys uh, because. You know, Chalimo and Hill both have global medals. Bohr is pretty legit in the steeple. I mean, I think it has to be Chalimo. Uh, he has to be favored in this race. He usually wins this race at USA's. But, you know, Ryan, Ryan Hill and Hillary Bohr aren't bad either. Are you joking, John? Are you absolutely joking? What do you mean? I said Paul Chalimo is going to win the race. He's an Olympic medalist. He ran 750 on a flat track last week, and he's going to dominate this race unless... Where's my boy Anthony Rotich? Where's the guy that I have bet? I'm on record saying will be on the Olympic team. He's won the USA Cross Country Championships. Why isn't he in here? He in this race to make you scared, John? Because you'll be paying me money at the Olympic trial soon. Well, Robert, I have news for you. He is in this race. I just didn't include him because I didn't think he was as notable as some of these other guys. He's run four ten and seven fifty eight this year. Four ten mile and seven fifty eight. 3k this year so striking fear into the hearts of everyone clearly he has to be mentioned with performances like a 410 mile like he's how the could USA I, cross country champion he's a four-time steeplechase champion this guy just got citizenship you're sleeping on him this is disrespectful you disrespect this guy like you disrespect kellen taylor in the women's marathon it's embarrassing you have your biases you're supposed to be an unbiased journalist and this is ridiculous you're mentioning willie fink over to anthony rotich no well i i, I if Rotich wins this race, I'm going to be so Willie mad. Fink ran 3.59 to beat Edward Cesarek on a flat track. Anthony Rotich ran 4.10 on a bank track. I mean, 
open your eyes, Robert. You're saying I'm, I have these biases and I'm, I dislike these runners. I mean, I think you're too much in the tank for Anthony Rotich. Weldon, break this tie. Wait, what is Rotich running indoors this year? He's run 4.10 and 7.58. Were any of those wins? 4.10 is pretty bad. And he won the USA Cross. They were both wins. They were at the same, they were at the same meet. One was the 7.58 was on January 10th and the 4.10 was on January 11th. So it was pretty early in the indoor season. I'll give Think's it. more of a miler. Why is he running the 3K? He's going to get beat. I agree with Robert. Anthony Rotich, baby. <laughs> hold, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Well then, please explain to me why you think Willie Fink is more than a more of a miler. You don't know anything about Willie Fink. He won a mile, but why is that? He just won a mile. Exactly. I never heard of the guy. I'm confusing him with Woody Kincaid. I mean, like it's like it's like Woody and Willie. I'm like, yeah, isn't that the guy? And then I'm like, oh no, that was Woody Kincaid. So until he pulls a Woody Kincaid, he's more of a miler because the only thing I've heard him do is win a mile. So uh, you think he's going to beat a steeplechase guy to three k? No. At altitude, no way. Actually, the more I think about it, yeah, I totally got Robert's back on this. Well, no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying Fink will beat Rotich, but I will say because also at altitude, that's a good point. But wait, you like, just I, argued like I was an idiot. You are saying it. I argued you were an idiot because you're saying you're proclaiming that this guy is a miler when you know nothing about his background or strengths or weaknesses other than one result you saw on you know the Let's Run homepage. But twenty, 20 bucks, who wins, Rotich or Fink? We'll double up our soccer bet that we did last week. You you knew you took advantage of me in that bet. John and I had a secret bet on a soccer match last week. John was getting three to one odds. We bet even money. But well, that's your own idiocy. You didn't do. Your I know you took advantage of bets where you don't know what you're betting on. Um, Willie Fink versus Anthony Rhodes. You know what? I'm going with my boy. He ran 744, 744 in Boston, Robert. Well, then. Willie Fink. Willie Fink did? Willie Fink, 20 bucks. What? You're, you're what? on. This is unfair. I didn't know he ran a 744. <laughs> no, we're on. He ran a 744? Yeah. But no, no, he's a Milo Weldon. You, you, you know, this is unfair. I didn't know this. Can I take it back? No, yeah. no, 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 no. Okay, I'm on the record. Once I make a bet, I don't take you it back. All, you got all angry. I wasn't even going to take your bet. And now you're mad that I... This I is, re- once again, John using facts to take advantage of someone. This is loan sharking and terrible. We need to protect the innocent. It's like you can't have an interest rate you don't understand. Okay, guys. I really apologize for the unprofessionalism of Weldon and Jonathan on this podcast. I said we were going to get rid of Jonathan. I may get rid of Weldon and just have the Rojo podcast because, first of all, Weldon has repeatedly on this podcast said, like, without looking it up, without knowing the stats. So like, he just got back from Europe. Maybe he's still jet lagged. He needs to take a page out of Robert's book, and when he doesn't know something, ask me, and I will provide the information. Right, Robert? That makes also, you a lot smarter. Yes. The little known secret is, folks, we don't really re-edit this podcast, but if I don't know something, you can pause and look something up real quick, and then the software takes out... Like, Robert, you're blowing the fob! Why are you talking about this? <laughs> but to call Willie Fink, Fink a miler, I mean, this was a guy that was running the steeplechase at, at, at NCAAs repeatedly, and was, you know, he ran, he ran a 10,000, 2904, 1343, and, and his PR in the 1500s in college was 347. Well, he's calling him, yeah, he's a definite miler. So we apologize, Willie. When you win USA's, you will be our guest of the podcast next week. I'm all aboard Willie Fink train. I'm going to lose this bet. I think Willie should run the 5K at Worlds, just like Perrier. Actually, I'm really impressed. The 29-minute 10K guy? Like, now this guy could be the phenom of this year, the the breakout phenom. He was actually dropping down in the mile. If I'd done a little research, I would have been raving about Willie Fink's chances at the 3K, and this would be a very different segment.
All right, one more thing from Indoor Track. I think we have to mention Mondo Duplantis, a 6.17 world record by the 20-year-old? 20-year-old. I was like, wait, he's got to be older by now. That's nuts. And this guy was the phenom. You know, growing up, his dad put a pole vault built in his backyard. His dad was a world-class pole vaulter. His mom's a very good athlete. His brother was a college baseball player. I think he plays in the minors for the Mets now. Um, so very athletic family. But I I guess maybe you'd plan it out they'd break the world record. But I didn't think it would happen at age 20. This is the highest vault ever, indoor or outdoors. So he's the all-time record holder. I mean, he almost broke it two weeks ago. So, but I, like, where, what's the limit? How high does he go? I mean, he's already done 617 indoors at 20. Oh, we're going to get a Sergei Buka thing where this guy, like, every, you know, maybe once or twice a year is just going to be going around and raising the world record by, you know, a centimeter or something and getting those sponsor bonuses. I mean, you just look at, yeah, he earlier last week in Dusseldorf, he, he almost cleared 617. He just brushed it on the way down, and then he gets it in Torun, Poland. And, you know, he's just, he looks stronger and faster this year. Granted, I, I haven't studied him extensively, but... You know, he's he's out of college now. I think he said he's improved <clears throat> some of his habits. He's being a little bit more professional. Uh, yeah, sky's the limit for this guy, obviously. And he's going to be the Olympic favorite. But just to give a shout-out to Sam Kendricks, the two-time defending world champion who beat Duplantis in a great pole vault last year, Sam did break the American indoor record over the weekend as well. He jumped 6.01 in France. I'm kind of surprised. I kind of don't really understand why they weren't at the same meet. But yeah, I don't know. I, I Mondo's certainly the favorite, and he's just his upside's tremendous. But uh, you know, just keep on. There are other pole vaulters in the sport. Interesting. Do they ever have a pole vault at Milrose? The new Milrose. That I-, I think they've done it. But the thing is, the ceiling. I think they get worried. Some of these indoor events, like Mondo, is the ceiling high enough in, in Milrose for him to be vaulting like? Six eighteen or six eighteen. I think so. Armory. <laughs> well, sometimes they have things hanging down. I don't know. Maybe I'm sounding like an idiot here, but because the old Milrose at uh, the Garden, the pole vault at an indoor track in a stadium, the, one of the best events by far is the pole vault because you're up above it. You can see it. They can put lights on it. It's it's really great. So I didn't even realize Kendricks broke the U.S. American record, but he's what sixteen centimeters. Well, he so remember he he jumped six oh six last year outdoors at USA's. So that's that's pretty damn good. Uh, uh, it's only six inches. Again, this, uh, folks, Robert, Robert, I'll be advertising my own podcast soon. Do they do the pole vault at Milrose? They did the pole vault this year at Milrose. Sandy Morris won it. They did the what women's pole vault, Robert. Yes. You don't think that the armory is big enough for a twenty foot? By the well, way, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm talking. No one's talking about. I don't folks. know. Y'all are talking about meters. A lot of our audience works in feet and inches. It's 20 feet, two and three quarters inches. He's It's his first vault over 20 feet as well. I think his PR coming in was 605, so 617. Congratulations to Mondo. Well, wait, I have a bone to pick on you that with you there, Robert. I feel like I don't know anything in feet and inches for the jumps anymore, or, or for, certainly for the pole vault. I only think in meters. I don't know about – I feel like – most track fans, that's just what is used across the world. Do, do, do you really think, like, do you, uh, to me, I get more context out of a 6.17 jump or a 6-meter jump than I do about something in feet and inches. What about you guys? 
Feet and inches mean a lot more to me. 20 feet seems high as hell. Sandy Morris, 491 doesn't mean anything to me. When I hear 16 feet, I'm like, damn, that's high. I mean, in terms of, if you ask me to like mark off 20 feet, how tall is it? Yes, I guess I, you know, in layman's terms, I guess I understand it more. But in terms of like, what's a good pole vault? I know like, yeah, 490 is really good. Five meters is outstanding. Whereas, you know, what's the difference in feet and inches between them? I don't really know. For a woman, I'm, you know, I mean. I just had to look up what 20 feet was in meters. Anyone know? 607. Close. 6096. So I guess 6.10. That's kind of interesting. If you're an American, you know, and you're over six. So I you know, I guess no American's ever been over. What's the outdoor record? No American's ever been over 20 feet. Yeah, it's 606 by Sam Kendricks at USA's last year. John, I, I think the hitting the ceiling in the men's pole vault at Milrose might be one of the dumbest things you've ever seen. There is there is some meat that this was a legitimate concern. I think they were worried about whole, maybe it wasn't Milrose. I'm getting, but Milrose, there isn't a roof right there. There's this upper, there's like a little second deck where people no, I, are sitting. I know, but sometimes there are things that are like scoreboards that overhang John, or st- like banners and stuff like that. I don't know. I'll, I'll edit this part out if you want, Robert. Uh, no, this, this makes me, it's okay. It keeps me humble, you know, but, uh, there, there's definitely, I've heard at some point in my life, there was some indoor arena where people were concerned it was going to be an issue with the men's pole vault because they were going too high. Maybe this was world indoors back in 2016 or something when I was really good into the pole vault. There was some meet where there was an issue. Yeah, probably not at Milrose, but I'm, it's not my home track there, Weldon. I'm only there once a year, so what do I know? All right. I, we got a lot still to talk about. I got a lot to rant about. I mean, last week you held Robert off on the shoes until the second half of the podcast. I think John has a rant to go on. Do we want to talk about shoes? Unfortunate situation in Canada. Or Galen Rupp. We have to talk about Galen. I'm shocked that it's it's an hour into the podcast and we haven't talked about Galen yet. So it's 61.19 at the Sprouts Mesa Half Marathon in Mesa, Arizona. It's a slight downhill, so it's probably worth a little slower than that. I mean, I don't think there's that much to talk about, though, basically. He was wearing the normal Next Percent shoes. He's back. He wins in 61 mid. He looks pretty good. Robert wrote it up in the week that was. He's like, look, put him on the team. This is all we needed to see from him. I think that's basically the takeaway here. John, John, John. You don't think that a two-time Olympic medalist running his finishing his first race in what? How long? Almost. Since October 2018. 400, I think 489 he, days is a big deal. Let's run. Would not Without Galen Rupp pump, pumping that message board for the last 10, 15 years, let's run would probably be bankrupt. This is a big deal to see him back. I mean, he's been gone for over a year. Thank God Alberto got himself in some trouble, so there was something to talk about. But we survive on talking about Galen Rupp and Alberto Salazar. So it's a big deal to see him healthy, to see him running well. I said put him on the team, but since then I've been thinking a little bit about it, having some second guesses. Only in a sense of, I can't remember if someone texted me or someone put this on the message board. Someone said, but what if he was actually on drugs under Salazar? You're assuming that he's he's... And I said, well, I didn't think about it then, huh? But no, I'm still not, I'm, I'm still very confident because he looked relaxed running this. He's running just as fast as Jerry Ward did in Houston. If you add in like 25 seconds for the downhill or whatever it was. So, um. What about the course? Maybe he won't, the Houston course is, the Atlanta course is like, no, nothing, no one has ever seen. I did think about that. What if his like Achilles pops in the hills or something? I just think it's unlikely. His coach said he was relaxed. I, I made this mistake four years ago. 
I didn't pick him to win the trials, even though I knew he was the best guy easily in the field. I, I overthought myself. I was like, well, it's his first day. It's his debut. Other people got to me. No. Galen Rupp's winning the Olympic marathon trials. He's going to have the freaking alpha flies on his feet. This isn't a debate. It's it's a race for the next two spots. John, what about Jim Walmsley? The guy getting the most attention for the trials. Actually, our sponsor, Hoka Onaoni. We're going to have Jim on the podcast next week. Returning guest. But he got three profiles national yesterday. One in New York Times Magazine, one in Sports Illustrated, and one in Runner's World. They all came out the same day. It's kind of crazy how much publicity he's going to get. There's like jillions of threads about Jim on Let's Run. But but don't folks, don't worry. I have not read those profiles yet, but I've already heard complaints about them. That clearly, I think someone was telling me the New York Times runner author clearly did not understand running and didn't do a good job. So folks... Just wait to our podcast. We will ask. We will, you will learn more from listening to us than reading this crap from other people. Yeah, what? Okay, first of all, the New York Times thing, I thought it was very good. And he, there's mention of, I could pull up the exact quote, but like, online running forums, plural. Come on. We know what you're talking about. There's only one online running forum. Let's not pretend. They should have just put a link straight to us. That's my only beef with the article. I thought it was pretty interesting. And it, that's the one most people are going to read. It's going to be, I think, the Sunday magazine feature this upcoming week. So tons of profile, tons of publicity for him. I mean, it's intriguing, like the best ultra marathoner who has actual, I don't know how you want to say it, track pedigree background that you can sort of in your mind think, hey, maybe there's a chance. Yeah, I I thought it was an interesting story, but there was a very telling quote in that New York Times magazine story from Scott Fauble. He said, let's be clear about this. Jim squeaked into the trials in the half marathon. He ran 64 flat on the fastest course in the country. If his name wasn't Jim Walmsley and all he'd run is 64 flat, nobody would like, nobody would be like, oh man, this guy, this guy's making the team, which I think is a pretty interesting, you know, comment from a guy who actually is one of the favorites. But I think Jim, it's going to be fascinating to see what he does, but you know, he's. I just don't think he's on Fobble's. He hasn't shown anything to indicate he's on Fobble's level as a marathoner, and we don't even know if Fobble's going to make the team. I understand the sentiment. I think Jim got everything he could have asked for for his debut. And this is his debut marathon, which is kind of crazy for an ultra marathoner. I think that's getting some help. One of these reasons people are getting publicity, and it's sort of the unknown. People love talking about hypotheticals in sports, like, oh, if you put an ultra guy versus this or such and such. There's a lot unknown, but this course is so difficult. It's like maybe that can help equalize things for him. You know, if they hadn't taken out, they took out a couple hills on this course. Jim, I'm sure, would have loved to have those hills put back in the course. Chris Chavez actually made a good point in his story on Walmsley. He mentioned like he's just a wild card. No one knows what he's going to do. And if all these other guys are being cautious on the hills, let's say Walmsley makes a break at like 10 miles and tries to do what Yuki did in 2018 Boston or what. Uh, what Meb did at 2014 Boston and people say, ah, he'll come back. It's the ultra marathon guy. Don't worry about him. And then he just gets so much ground that he ends up being able to sneak out for third, pull it out for third or something. I, you know, that's, is that going to happen? Probably not, but I think it's an, it makes an interesting wild card. Uh, we don't know what he, how he's going to do on this course. I, I, I want to keep my Jim Walmsley comments till I actually interview him this weekend. My interview is going to be tomorrow with him. Do want to disparage him publicly on this podcast before I, Interview him tomorrow, but folks, first of all, Fobble, he did, Jim did run 62 14 on January 19th. Now, that was a short course. 
they said it was about a minute short for a woman, so maybe a little bit less. So, like, that's 63 low. I mean, that's a little bit faster than Chris Derrick ran this weekend. So, let's go back to Rupp, though. Enough Walmsley talk. Rupp, impressive. We're all in agreement on the team, barring a DNF. Yeah. Okay. Another half marathon. I just mentioned him. At the Rock and Roll race in New Orleans last weekend, Chris Derrick, this is a guy that broke his, fractured his fibula, I think, at the Crim 10 Mile in August. By stepping in a pothole. Just awful luck. But thumbs up to Chris. He didn't do what so many people nowadays would do and sue the city or anything like that. People, John ripped him off and said he was out of the trials. Chris didn't listen to Jonathan Galt. Got back in it. Within four weeks, he was running. Apparently, it's a non-weight-bearing bone. Within 10 weeks, he was running workouts. He repeats reports to me that he's running between 130 and 140 miles a week with Andy Bumbleo in Colorado. And they have both shown up at this rock and roll race. They both have run 64 minutes, right, John? 64.09 and 64.10. They now, that's not very fast time, obviously, for a half marathon if you're going all out. But they said it was a workout and a race environment. And I think they did, like, some more mileage before and afterwards. So any chance, guys, that either one of them makes the team? To me, Derek is one of the most accomplished runners in American history that has not made an Olympic team. I guess you could put Ben True in that with his 1302 there as well. Yeah, I mean, if, if you ask me with, if Chris Derrick coming out of college, you know, 2012 NCAAs, I, if you asked me would he make an Olympic team, I would have said absolutely. You know, he'll make it in either in 2012 when he was fourth or 26. I mean, if remember, if, if Dathan Ritzenhide had made the marathon team in 2012, Chris Derrick probably makes that Olympic squad because he doesn't come back and run the trials. But, you know, I, I just don't... I still think there are just so many other people who have done more than Derrick in the marathon. And even at full strength, I don't know if he would have been, you know, would have had enough to beat the guys like Ward or Fable or Career or Rupp. I just think cracking that top four is so tough. And... Then when you add in coming back from injury, I know he's back running, but I just don't think either of these guys, I think they're in that big group that if they have a really great race, then one of the top four sort of falters, they might have a chance. I'm not writing him off, but I, I don't see either way. I, I don't see either of them making this team. And you said Derek's one of the most accomplished American runners not to make the Olympics. It started me thinking, like, what are his accomplishments? I'm like, is he one of the fastest not to make it? He's never won a USA outdoor track title. I guess he is, I think he's the, or was at least, the American collegiate 10K fastest guy ever. He won, like, what, one NCAA title on the track? He's won a He, he never won NCAAs. Really? Four-time top 10 finisher at NCAA cross. Yeah, so he's never won an NCAA title. He did win a USA cross-country title. That's it. Three. He won three of those. Oh, he did? Wow. Yeah, he was top 10 at World Cross. He's just more of a cross-country runner, I guess, which is kind of crazy. But he's a very good runner. I don't see him making the team. I think one thing interesting, and do we go there now to the shoes? But everyone's talking about all the Oh, wait, he has the other flies. I forgot. He'll have the off. Never mind. He's on the team, everyone. He's on the team. No, I'm just kidding. But that's a, well, that, that could help. That could really legitimately help him. I, 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 my main thing is if some unsponsored guy, one of these spares who ran 210 or 211, I don't think some of these guys might be unsponsored. If one of them makes the team, we'll know why. Okay. Back to Derek. First of all, he ran 27-31 in college, which is pretty damn good. 
The year after college, he ran 13.08, which is pretty damn good. He hasn't done much since then. It's been a lot of injury. That Achilles injury, I don't know, makes me nervous. But Bumbleo, people forget, Bumbleo is right with those other Americans in Chicago this year in 211. So, yes, there's a big gap drop between Fobble, Ward, Career, and Rupp down to these 211 guys. But I, I would throw them in the mix with everybody else in Chicago and say they've got some sort of a chance if these four other people screw up. Um, but I, I think last week we, we kept all Vaporfly talk until the end of the show. I think we should do it again this week. That worked well. I want to turn to a amazing piece of journalism, but a very disturbing story from north of the border from Canada. And journalist Michael Doyle, who used to be the editor of Canadian Running Magazine, has done an amazing story. It is out in the Globe and Mail in Canada. That is the largest paper in all of Canada. It was on the very front page of the paper, I think, last weekend. And the story is basically a total takedown of former Guelph coach, uh, Dave Scott Thomas, who was a top Canadian coach, an Olympic coach for Canada, and it includes allegations from Megan Brown, a former top Canadian uh, teenage prodigy, Olympic hopeful, who basically uh, alleges that Scott Thomas groomed her for sex. They had a sexual relationship. She even says that at one point he checked her out of a mental hospital and had sex with her. Just a, a really horrific story. But an amazing piece. If you haven't read it, find it. Go to the Let's Run homepage and find it and read it now. And it's just really powerful journalism. Uh, Scott Thomas had already been suspended after a recent second allegation had come out. Um, but this story um, apparently had been sort of. I I I, I called up um, Michael Doyle yesterday and spoke to him, guys, for about an hour on the phone to see how this story originated. It's really a fascinating backstory. I don't know if you guys are aware of it or not. But um, well, it just seemed to me that a lot of the Canadian athletes have spoken out of it, said it was kind of an open secret that they knew something was up about Dave Scott Thomas and this this woman Megan Brown. But if you read the article, Dave Scott Thomas had essentially told them, you know, she made this up. She that's what he told Recall Set, uh, one of his former athletes, and there was a lot of he was essentially trying to discredit her. And now it was only now that she's really told the full story in her version of events. Correct. I think a lot of athletes were told she was she was crazy and blah blah blah, and she was actually inspired by Mary Kane. Um, she says, well, anyways, the way it went down was, according to Michael Doyle, Doyle said that everyone heard this story that something had happened between the two of them a long time ago. You're talking what 15, 16 years ago, but he didn't know the details. And then in the middle of this year, apparently there was been a second allegation. This woman has not gone public, but athletics Canada briefly published that it was sexual in nature. Then they've now taken that back off the website, but basically a second allegation came up and he, in the middle of the season sort of stopped coaching. I think he tried to hide the fact that he was suspended. Um, so when Doyle heard that this year, he decided to do some investigation. So he reached out to Megan Brown himself and just said, Hey, look, I've heard rumors for a long, long time. If you, if, if you, if you want, you know, I'm sorry if I'm off base, but if there's something that you want to share, I'd be willing to tell your story. And she got in touch with him very quickly and said, I think the time is right. A year or two, maybe not, but thanks to me too. Thanks to Mary Kane. She specifically cited Mary Kane. So Mary, you're having an impact. She said the time is now. She, you know, she, she said she might have felt been fearful of shame in the past. 
but she she told her story. And apparently, talking to Doyle about how the journalism of this works, like this story has been very well vetted. There's tons of lawyers. He he told me that even the the, the notification, the push notification to announce that there's a story was vetted by the lawyers because they're obviously fearful of lawsuits because there's some explosive allegations in there. So it's just really interesting how it went down. So a great job by both Doyle for reaching out to Megan Brown and for Megan Brown for having the courage to come forward. And I think really they probably wanted to stop this from happening again. Um, But, you know, uh, Doyle told me something really interesting, you know, he said, you know, part of the story also is Megan Brown, you know, she was a teenager at the time and her mother was totally healthy. And then 17 days later was di- was dead because a mosquito bit her. She was a victim of the West Nile virus. Imagine that. So you're going through the trauma of living with your mother and then she finds running and she is a prodigy. And then a coach violates the trust that's given to coach. And he, he, he you know, Coach Doyle said something interesting. He's like, look, when you're 17 and everything is going well, Almost every 17-year-old is a psychological mess when things are going well. And when things aren't going well, it's even harder. And a coach has a great deal of power. It's really your responsibility as a coach not to do it. And there's been some interesting topics. Pat, about this. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, uh, uh, coach, this is a 17-year-old minor high school girl. Like, for, like, let's not compare it to some other coach, like, sleeping with an athlete. This is like... Yeah, some of the same things are involved, but this is just so, like, beyond the pale. It's a crime. Like, some of these things, obviously, coaches shouldn't be, be do- doing, but, like, I assume he can be prosecuted for this now? Assume he can be, it can be proven, you know, in a court? Like, it's just so beyond the pale. And some people say, oh, this is a similar issue to other coaches. In some ways, yes, but in some ways, no, because United States, Canada, this is a crime. Well, the weird thing that I thought from this story is it's it's a heartbreaking story and some gruesome details in there. But the author Doyle tried to sort of link this to the win at all cost culture that Dave Scott Thomas had, and that this was a big issue. And I, I just don't really see this connection. To me, this is a coach abusing his power with an athlete. I don't think that's a reflection of the win at all cost coach culture he had instilled at the University of Guelph and with Speed River. I agree with you for the most part, John. I, I think it was part of the fact that it was just, he was viewed as a guru. Uh, yeah, like the fact that he pushed a few other athletes through injuries, to me, is totally unrelated to this aspect. But I think he did have sort of – this was a guy that was being put on to lead national teams. He was sort of trying to transform them into like sort of like almost like – he wanted to take on – be like the NCAA power of Canada. They don't really have NCAA type running there, but that's what they, he was trying to turn Guelph into. But yeah, that's sort of a side point. Um, just incredible journalism. And I promised Michael Doyle that I would give him a shout out. He has actually an XC newsletter called the XC Substack. So if you go to the xc.substack.com, you can check out his weekly newsletter. I also think he has a podcast. So some really good stuff from him um, last week that was really, really very, very powerful. All right. Well, on a more positive note, we do have some good news to share this week. And this is an email we received a couple of weeks ago. And it's about a guy named Tom Slattery who qualified for the Olympic trials with a little help from let's run.com. So he re- emailed us out to, uh, you know, say he was happy to share his story and we figured we would let you guys hear about this. So this is from January 20th. He sent this email right after the Houston half marathon, Weldon and Rob, 
Interesting. Rob, not Rojo or Robert. I hope all is well leading into a new week. I wanted to reach out to say a quick thank you, as it would not have been possible for me to hit the Olympic trials mark in Houston yesterday without the community on Let's Run's message boards. I ran my first marathon at CIM and missed the OTQ by 10 seconds, running 219.09. Since it was a Sunday, I took the red eye back to New York so I could get to work the next morning, and my boss informed me that my position was being switched to a sales role at the credit lending startup I was at. So my position was going to end. He was going to tell me on Friday, but he held off of the because of the race, thankfully. Many of my teammates and friends convinced me to run Houston as I originally was not intending on racing. I pleaded with the organizers to grant me a race entry for the marathon and was extremely bummed that I had to pay $142 to get into the ADP section as I was on an extremely tight budget and basically broke. I pulled all my airline points together for the flight the cheapest return flight was two hours after the race ended and made a thread asking if anyone would be willing to split an Airbnb as anything else would have been way too expensive for me. Luckily, I got a response from Evan Schwartz and his fiance, Sakiko Minagawa, who also has the OTQ, who said they had some room in their Airbnb. So I was able to stay on their couch for the weekend. It was actually super comfortable. And thankfully, I was able to get a good night's rest before the race. Again, thank you for providing the platform for occasions like this which, and this is very cliche, enabled my dreams to become reality. Hopefully, I will be able to thank you both in person in Atlanta. Best, Tom Slattery. And we should give you the the actual result here. Tom ran a PR. He ran 218.35 in Houston to get under by 25 seconds. I mean, just all that stuff. Can you imagine how crazy that is? You missed the Olympic trials qualifier by less than 10 seconds. Then you get found out that your position is being eliminated at your company and then you you get your know, last minute organization to fly out to houston you take one another another crack at it just a month later you have a flight two hours after the race ended you scramble again find an airbnb and he gets the otq i mean that is find me a better story in the sport than that and what are we being praised for just having a message board that allowed him to get a free room you deserve That's the right. credit you deserve the credit yeah coming back through that adversity yeah, people, we are great. That is proof of it right there. Proof. Show your greatness to Jonathan Galt. Everyone, be like Des. Be like Des Linden and tip the podcast. You can tip the podcast in the show notes. John, another subscription. We we got another. We got a big tip from somebody who works at a shoe company, John. Should I, if I reveal the shoe company, though, may, maybe you'll be biased. You're, you're pretty much all these shoe companies now are going to start tipping John off. Here's what we need. We need all of the shoe companies to give an equal amount. Therefore, I can't be biased towards anyone. So they all should just give like, you know, $1,000 each. Now, I mentioned and hey, my- another sponsor's plug. We've got to do some sponsors here. If you're still listening, you know, most all these other podcasts do sponsors like every six minutes. We do them a couple times. You can still go to Atlanta, Atlanta Marathon Trials and run the Publix Atlanta 5K, 10K, half marathon or marathon the day after. Make it a great weekend in Atlanta. Or if you're on the West Coast... The Can-Am XC Cup is March, excuse me, February 29th, actually same day as Olympic trials. So if you're in Canada, check it out. Beautiful British Columbia. Maybe you'll run into Prince Harry and Meghan Markle out there, guys, if you're there as well. So added benefit of going to British Columbia. And once again, big shout out to Hoka One One. They are taking to the trials this month, and we've been featuring all their athletes running at the trials. So thank you to all of them. And while you're at it, rate and review the podcast five stars. Share it with all your friends. Let's, you know, guys, we're going to have great coverage coming up. Olympic marathon trials, Boston marathon, London marathon, Olympics. There's so much to talk about this year. 
you want to follow it by the listen to the podcast if you like it give us a review give us five stars spread the word okay guys you also forgot to drop the fact that we're going to still have the joke i was thinking we're ending with vaporflies but we still have the joe rubio interview no john john has already said the vaporflies have to go last so that means rubio should we do rubio now you guys made a big deal about this i want to go, i need to go on my oscars rant too and we need to have iowa caucus talk Wait, do they have the results of the Iowa caucus yet? I thought they still don't have the results. I don't know, but I'll, I'll share the inside story from our boots on the ground. Folks, we've been accused of being a right-wing news outlet because my father used to work for George W. Bush. Nothing can be farther from the truth. The only Let's Run employee that has voted, he lives in Iowa, the web programmer, Eric. He's voted, and he's voted for Bernie Sanders. And he was boots on the ground, folks. The night that they were having trouble reporting the stuff, he was not happy at all. He said it would take him 15 minutes to make a web form that could report these results, and he didn't understand what was taking so long, and he seemed to imply that it was all part of a conspiracy to prevent Bernie from doing well. And Bernie had the most votes in Iowa, but did not get the most delegates. Very interesting. So there you have some little inside scoop from Eric, the web programmer. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know how all that caucusing stuff works. So yeah. Oh, what, what other interesting thing about Eric, guys, is his wife is a physician. But he is for Bernie. I'm like, wow, this is going to wipe out your wife's income if we have free, you know, government-mandated health care. But he feels very passionately about this. He has a, ch- a son that was born with hemophilia. He's like, look, we have health care. We're fine. But I've seen the bills. It's $24,000 a month that his health care pays for this drug. So imagine if, he, if he's like, if I didn't have care, my life would be ruined for the rest of my life because you'd be just declaring bankruptcy after bankruptcy after bankruptcy. So interesting take there, folks, on it. And my take is all these conservatives, oh, free market, or you have to buy health insurance. Folks, there's no such thing really as a free market for healthcare. Like, what is the right price for this drug? If it's going to save someone's life and it's a billion and you're a billionaire, it's $999 million. You'll pay whatever you have to get it. So that's Rojo's rant. John, let's hear your Oscars rant. Yeah, so... I watched the Oscars on Sunday and I, I watched a decent amount of the movies this year. I don't know. I watched both Parasite and 1917 and everyone on Twitter and Twitter has been accused sometimes of being a liberal echo chamber. And I think in this case, maybe it was, you know, a bunch of these millennials. I, I mean, I identify, I'm, I would say I am a liberal mi- I, millennial. So I'm sort of Twitter's target audience, but everyone on my timeline is just freaking out they're like if parasite didn't win it would have been a huge tragedy it would have shown that the academy is just a bunch of old racist white guys that they didn't pick this movie over 1917 which had basically there was one woman in the entire movie and it was all white dudes and to me i just think like can we just remember these are films and it's sort of a subjective it's like some people i liked 1917 more than parasite i thought they were both amazing movies i think parasite's a worthy winner but is it the end of the world because we if if they picked 1917 because they liked it, heaven forbid just because they liked it more as a movie than Parasite is that a massive issue and does that make everyone in Hollywood racist I don't know I just think it was being way overblown like could, what if 1917 was a better movie and it loses it, it beats Parasite like is that a massive issue like parasite everyone's saying oh it's a hundred percent it's clearly objectively better it's like how many films are objectively better than other films it's a very subjective thing i don't know it just kind of upset me that people were thinking oh it's going to be some huge tragedy of paradise parasite loses but it's a good movie worthy best picture winner so congrats to them john i'm glad that you have gotten that off your chest millennials this is free therapy for you 
But this is really a problem. Again, another reason why we should get rid of you. It's a problem with you of what's in your timeline. John, Twitter, get off of it. It's like a woke purity test for so many people. It doesn't need to be that. Like, I actually read a stat. I think it was either the New Hampshire or Iowa primary. Like, these are liberals. These are Democrats that are voting. Like, what percent of the voters are actually even on Twitter? People like you think everyone's on Twitter. No. Something like only 20 or 30 percent. I think it was 20 percent of the voters in the Democratic primaries are even on Twitter. Like, Twitter is not as big as people think. Maybe for young people it is. But in terms of this movie, I'll admit I haven't seen it. But I heard someone else say it. Um, I think it was a sports radio host called Travis. He's like, look, it was a good movie, but would it have won if it wasn't a Korean movie? No. So it's just people voting for it because they want to be woke. No, I, th- I think that's a ludicrous claim. No foreign language movie had ever won Best Picture before this year. To argue that suddenly that's an advantage after 90 plus years of it not being an advantage, I think is wrong. But my what makes me upset is like I'm looking at this thing and... It's making me feel bad about... I'm like, if I like 1917 more than Parasite, does that make me a bad person? Like, last year, I liked Green Book more than Roma. Hey, newsflash, Roma was boring, all right? Does that make me a bad person for liking Green Book more than... Does it make me a racist because I like Green Book? Or yes, John, there's Roma, a huge thing. Like 1917 more than Parasite? I mean, how about I just like one movie more than another, you know? Oh, apparently, John, John, Green Book, there's a lot of stuff with Green Book last year. If you like it too much, I think you're racist. So careful there. Careful. But, hey, I sort of understand the point. I saw Parasite on the plane back from Paris. Good movie. Uh, but I was wondering, hey, if this movie had been made in English, would it have won the Oscar? I feel like there's a time and place for something. And the Oscars were sensitive to some of the criticism, I feel like. You, you you can't say, but I think sometimes nowadays there is some cachet being uh, underprivileged or whatnot, and sort of these clash of things, identity politics, uh, there's a lot going on in the world right now. Some of it good and some of it just way, 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 way overreaction. And I think some of these things you're talking about, John, are sort of entering, you know, presidential politics. And sort of one thing I've heard, like, oh, how Bernie, he's a socialist. How can he be doing so well one he's consistent there's a bunch of stuff you know there but also like his vision is more inclusive it's all workers it's not like oh only white men or minority women or whatever it's like he's reaching out to a more inclusive group instead of like whereas the rest of the sort of democratic primary a lot of them are sort of originally at least trying to tailor focus on like what they were oh i'm a woman who's running for president i'm a black man and sort of when you donate yourself or segment yourself, sometimes the message, the audience you're reaching becomes smaller as a result. All right. Well, I think everyone has survived our politics talk and our woke Twitter talk. It's now time to crack your beer. I think we need to talk about the shoes. No, 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 John. Vaporfly talk has to go absolutely last. We still have the Joe Rubio interview. He's the head coach of the Hoka Oni Oni Aggies. I'm very excited about this, folks, because I've been reading these profiles. We've been putting these profiles up of the Hoka Trials qualifiers, and many of them are Hoka Aggies. And it just reminds me, I love the blue-collar runners, the ones that have the full-time jobs and are still training. And so many of the Aggies are like that. So, well then, tell the people what we have here. Yep. So, Joe Rubio, he's a pretty interesting guy. I mean, in, in the sport, first time I ever ran into the Aggies, had to be the 2000 Trials. I went to my first Olympic Trials as an athlete, and there was these kind of crazy people on the backstretch just cheering and having a really good time and i think you know there's the 1500 meter start and that's kind of their thing they all now go to the trials and like i'm like these guys are cool and it was the aggies and joe then started running warehouse 
one of the leading online retailers. And he's, he's just been a coach. He's just like a running lifer. So he talks about coaching the Aggies, his team at the, at the trials, you know, some of the, the men's team, the women's team, what we're going to get. And then also I included the part where he talks about how Hoka and the Aggies got hooked up because I didn't even know that story. Joe just has like so much knowledge, but he knows like the sort of, I'm like, how did Hoka, like no one had heard of Hoka five years ago. And he talks about how the former CEO of Deckers, Angel Martinez, there's an AM on the Hoka Aggies logo, the original Aggies logo. I mean, the Aggies have had Aces as a sponsor, Reebok as a sponsor in the past. And the eventual CEO of Deckers was an original Aggie. So it's kind of crazy. And then another Aggie, Jim Van, D- Van Dyne, was the president of Hoka at one point. So there's strong connections between them and sort of it's totally a blue collar. It's one of the most diverse running groups in the world as well. And I really realized that. But, like, you know, they got two Indian Americans on the team. Like, John, you're younger. Like, what do you know of the Aggies? Yeah, I kind of just knew their reputation. They seemed to like to have fun and kind of party at the Olympic trials. And that they are a running group. That's basically all I knew about them. Yep. So that's a perfect intro. You know, they have qualification standards, but they're a real team. You have to run the centipede at the beta breakers. They have a good time. It makes sense now how the Oga Aggies and Hoka got hooked up. So here it is, sponsored segment by Hoka Onioni. Highlights with Joe Rubio. Joe Rubio is the head coach of the Hoka Onioni Aggies and the founder of Running Warehouse. No other way to put it, Joe is a running lifer. A two-time Olympic marathon trials qualifier, he finished 26 at the 1996 Olympic marathon trials Back in 1987, he started training and living with a guy named Mark Conover. The unheralded Conover went on to win the 1988 Olympic Marathon Trials. I first met Joe at the 2000 Olympic Track Trials in Sacramento, where a group then called the Reebok Aggies was making a lot of noise and having a lot of fun on the backstretch. The Aggies are still having a lot of fun today and are now sponsored by Hoka Oneone. All in all, the Aggies have about 150 members. They have running members, social members, and about 60 of those are competitive. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can be a member of the Aggies if you live out in California. They got groups in the Bay Area, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo. Barring injury or illness, it looks like they will have six participants at the trials. We tried something a little bit different with Joe. We're just going to do highlights. So here it is, first starting, Joe talking about the team nature of the Aggies. We have athletes all over Northern California, and what yeah. we try to do is want, want to make sure that we are a club, so we don't have hired guns that come in that you're just meeting on the starting line. You know, we have a participation requirement that, okay, here's a list of races, and we're required to run two of these in addition to our Pacific Associated Cross-Country Championships and be available for the Beta Breaker Centipede um, and all those you know, really build bonds between the athletes and also right. keeps, you know, it's, it's fun stuff. You know, initially they might look at it with skepticism, but once they do it, it I mean, they have a blast and like at a, the PA cross country championships, you know, we have close to 80 people out there uh, as spectators and athletes and we have a huge picnic afterwards and it's, you know, it's really pretty cool. It's really fun. Yeah, the trials thing, I can't emphasize enough to my athletes what a big deal it is because when I did it, everyone, sometimes your parents are trying to figure out what the heck you're doing still running, right? And then when you tell them you qualify for the Olympic trials, everyone understands that. Everyone. Your aunt who's never followed running in her life is saying, my kid, my 
nephews trying to make the Olympic team and brags to all their friends, right? And your boss gets it, you know? So I need some time off, a little additional time off to make practice. Sure, you try to make the Olympic team. All that stuff is a big deal. And also, you know, right now, you know, I um, have working relationships with people around the world. And when you tell people from Japan that you ran 218 and you ran the Olympic trials marathon, you know, they just look at you differently because they have such deep knowledge of how fast marathons are. And when you break, when you run certain times in the marathon in different cultures, like in Europe, you tell people how fast you run the marathon, they go, you know, they just look at you differently. There's a huge amount of respect for that. And people don't know times in the, in America so much, but they do understand that you made the Olympic trials. In particular about the trials, yeah, what do you, what can you expect from your guys and girls? Like what's the, you know, some people I think who don't really get the trials, like why are people doing it? They're not going to make the team. And I'm sure some people dream of making the team, but like, what do you think the best somebody can do at the trials is? And also, why do you think what motivates them to, to, to keep trying to get better? You know, it's, it's that challenge, right? It's like how many people honestly think they're going to win NCD one title, right? Maybe a handful, but you want to go and, and perform your best when it counts. And when you're able to do that, it's a phenomenal feeling. So uh, in my own case, my last Olympic trials was in 96 and I went in with number 71. So that's, I was 71st ranked runner. I ended up getting 26th, which I thought was a pretty good accomplishment because going in it, you know, I beat my, my number. And that's the goal that I have for my athletes is, Hey, if you can beat what your ranking is going in, you had a pretty good day. And the most, satisfying thing as an athlete is to perform your best when it matters. And if you're able to do that at the trials, regardless of where you finish, uh, you feel pretty good about the event. It's a great accomplishment. And the fact that these people get to go and experience racing against the best people in the United States and having a shot at making the team um, is great. I mean, that's, you know, our claim to fame is having, uh, I don't want to say nobodies, but people that weren't really seen as favorites do very well at, at uh, the trials and nationals and so forth. So like Conover didn't really know he was on, wasn't on anybody's radar and he won in 88. And then Jamie Harris won the 1500 at nationals in 99 and no one knew who he was. And we had uh, Linda Summers and uh, Rachel Cook and Jill Boaz and several others make world championships teams. Linda made a 96 marathon team. So you know, it's pretty cool. And everyone, every, every one of those people had a full-time job at the time. Here, Joe starts talking about the Hoka men's team at the trials, just composed of Sergio Reyes, a former U.S. marathon champ with a 213 PR, who's 38 years old, but two years ago was running very fast at Cal International before blowing up. And two Indian American guys, Swarnjeet Boyal, who ran 217 this past December, a week before running the club nationals, he went from being a club runner to a D1 conference champion. And Rajpal Panu, also a 217 marathoner, who started running because he was overweight and his dad tragically died of a heart attack at age 40. I mean, we can talk about it now. I mean, Swarnjeet um, came from Marysville and he was a walk on at Cal Poly and he actually ran for a good buddy of mine, Armando Siqueiros. Armando is the coach of the San Luis um, Distance Club, which is a, you know, it's most colleges 
have a club uh, for competitive runners for the people who don't make the team. And there's actually a national champion for that. Anyways, Armando is the, the head coach of that. And Armando also coached Jordan Hesse in high school. So he has a pretty good background. And um, anyway, so he coached Swarn Jeet. And Swarn Jeet made the jump to Cal Poly. And he ended up running low 29s. And then he started running for me two years ago. And where I really saw him shine was um, when Walmsley ran the world record in the 50 mile. Um, Swarn Jeet was his pacer. Him and another kid that runs for me, Brian. They were the pacers that took him through, I think, 31 miles. And Swarn Jeet just said, he looks so easy with Walmsley. And I said, could you have gone farther? He says, oh, yeah. So I think Swarn Jeet's one of those guys that I'm looking down the road and going, Mike. My, he's going to be a heck of an ultra runner. I mean, he just, it, yeah. And at Calendar National, that was his, uh, this past December, that was his first marathon. Um, and he was running five sixteens, five twenties for the first, um, first 20 miles. And then he ran five tens his last 10 K and he got done. I said, how do you feel? He said, I felt fine. So he's a, one of those guys that, um, if we can do some things right, he should run pretty fast. Um, Serge is another guy. I mean, he's going to be a master's runner here pretty soon. And at the 2018 calendar national, he was in second place at 24 and a half miles on 212 pace. And he ended up having a rough finish the last mile, but he's still under Brian 216. And for a guy that's 38 years old, uh, that's pretty good. Um, Raj Paul's another kid. Uh, that's an interesting story. He started running. Uh, he was really overweight in high school and started a jogging program and then ended up going to local community college, uh, getting better. And then he got a scholarship to uh, St. Mary's in Moraga and ended up um, making uh, D1 nationals in cross country as an individual. So, um, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Um, and I I believe Hoka is doing a series of stories on these athletes. And there was one yesterday from Raj Paul that if you get a chance, is really pretty, it's on Instagram. It's really interesting. Uh, talks a lot about uh, being a first generation um, Indian, American Indian from, uh, you know, and the pressures from his parents to become a doctor or an engineer. Um, and the running thing isn't really that popular with his family. Um, but he's trying to change stereotypes and expectations within the Indian culture, which is pretty cool. Um, and Swarnjeet's in a similar type of thing. Um, you know, going back to Sergio, I mean, the guy works for uh, is it, uh, Edwards Air Force Base. So he's a full-time uh, flight engineer there. Uh, he has a wife and a kid. And so he's fitting in 120, 130-mile weeks around uh, 40 to 60-hour work weeks as an engineer. Uh, Swarnjeet's an engineer. Raj Paul's a teacher. Um Mora has his own business. Liza works in the uh, medical industry. Um, our entire team is all blue-collar athletes. They're all working full-time. They all have careers. Uh, most have families. A lot of them have kids. And you get a guy like Phil Reed. You know, he's not in the marathon trials this time. But, you know, uh, two years ago, here's a guy with a full-time teaching job. And in his late 30s, he runs uh, 1351. You know, and these guys are, you know, working full time and, and Phil's also coaching. You know, he's a head cross country coach and assistant track coach at Roy Grande High School. So we have a lot of stories of that on the team. And, you know, uh, no one makes any excuses about having to work full time and not having the ability to take a nap. But the primary goal is to, you know, make sure that you have a career after your running stuff is done 
so that you can pay the bills. And any money that these people make off of the running circuit is just fun money. It's not, they're not making money to pay rent and they're not making money to pay the bills. Uh, anything they win is kind of, you know, go on vacation or buy presents or, you know, buy that thing that uh, um, you have your eyes on. But uh, some of the, I mean, with the support of Hoka and, and the prize money, some of these athletes are making some pretty significant uh, money on the side. And Hoka has been phenomenal as a sponsor, just in terms of all the support from um, from everyone there, the product, um, um, you know, the, the bonus structure, the travel, um, opportunities like the Carbon X. Um, but Hoka's phenomenal. Um, yeah, they've been. We've been with a lot of companies over the years, and this is our best relationship by far. Now, Joe talks about the Hoka women's team which is composed of Addy Zariner, a former Arizona runner who was told she ran like Shailene Flanagan as a kid. She taped a picture of Shailene on the wall, and she ran 237.51 in her debut. She's coached by Terry Howell in the Santa Barbara Aggies group. We've also got a new member to the Aggies, 241 marathoner Annie Deal, who was a D3 runner and is now at the trials. And 242 marathoner Lisa Reichert, who has a pretty tough and cool day job. She's a cancer researcher. Well, I mean, um, like Addie, her first out of the gate was a 237 at Grandma's last year. I mean, that's pretty good. And she ran for Arizona, University of Arizona, which tends to be a low mileage program. And I think she's got an excellent chance. Uh, Liza as well. Liza's, you know, uh, she had a child. Um, she was hurt over the summer uh, after Napa. She won Napa last year in 2:44, and then uh, she got hurt. And then she decided to focus on cross country. And she ran for coming off an injury. She ran super tough. So I would say um, she's looking fantastic. And she's running. Uh, we have a few athletes running at um, Kaiser Permanente Half Marathon on Sunday. So we'll see how that goes. But I would suspect that she she'll run really well. No one had ever heard of Hoka, what, 10 years ago? Maybe you had, you're in the shoe industry. Well, maybe, but five years ago, barely. And they've sort of just have this sort of carefree spirit that I feel like the Aggies share. But how did you guys get hooked up? How long has this been going? So we've been uh, with Hoka since uh, 2016, I believe. Um, and um, it's kind of an interesting concept because back when um, – we were uh, looking, our contract with ASICS was up. And um, at the time, uh, one of our founding fathers, Angel Martinez, was president of Deckers, and Deckers owns Hoka. So that was a, a natural, like our plow, we have a flying plow. And that's actually, if you look at the bottom of it, there's initials AM for uh, Adrian Martinez. So he's president of Deckers, and it was a natural fit. Jim Van Dyne, who was president of... That's too easy. Yeah. Jim Van Dyne, who was the president of uh, HOKA, uh, was one of our early members. He made the World Cross Country Team. And actually, Jim was a guy who came along and changed the dynamic of HOKA. So he signed Leo Manzano. He signed a lot of the track athletes to try to change the perception of HOKA as an old person's broken old person's shoe. And then... Um, uh, Angel retired, uh, and a new group of leaders came in, um, 
uh, Wendy Yang, who's the president uh, there. And then Lee Cox came in, and Lee uh, is an old friend. Uh, he worked at Reebok. Uh, he worked at um, Innovate. So I've known him for quite a while. He, he's head of sales and marketing. Uh, then Mike McManus came in, and Mike worked at Adidas for a long time, signed, uh, signed to all their top marathoners. Uh, Mike and I ran against each other in high school and college. Um, and he actually was the guy who introduced me to my partners here um, because he was head of tennis and running for Adidas, and he knew um, my partner, Drew, so he introduced us. So just long history with a lot of people. And the one thing uh, about the running industry, it's very small, and everyone knows each other, and everyone tends to be really nice to each other, regardless of brand, because people move around and change hats. And you know, I've been doing working in this shoe industry since 92, and most of the top people at all the brands are the same people that were there when I was when I started in 92. So, you know, the thing is, is that uh, the club itself has a, a great reputation, great athletes, and a lot of it has to do, you know, sponsorship. It's a lot of kids, you talk to them and they think all about, all they think about is, okay, uh, we need to run fast to get sponsorship. And that's not necessarily the case. You need to run fast. Yes, you need to perform, but you need to be good citizens. You need to have good relationships. Um, the brand needs to trust you as an organization to represent the brand and the way they they want it represented. They don't want to be embarrassed, right? And I know there's groups of people out there that run fast, but they're, you know, the athletes, when you meet them, are not really great people, you know? And you go, do I want this person representing my brand? You go, no, nah, I don't think so, you know? So even if you have a group of people that maybe aren't as fast, but they're rep better representatives of, of the brand, you know, that's going to carry a lot of weight. And so we have some really, really good citizens on our team. And another bonus of our club is we're probably the most racially diverse competitive distance club in the United States. You know, we have men and women. So we have both genders. We have all races and we're all running distance races, right? And, you know, uh, running tends to be a pretty white dominated sport. You know, you look at most clubs and it's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of the same, you know, same color out there. And that's not the case with us. And there's something to be said about that too. You know, uh, I would say three years ago, we did not have much of a women's team. And, uh, I mean, they told me point blank, you need to build up your women's squad. And this year we won the women's championship at the club cross country championships after, you know, doing this for three years. So that took quite a bit of work, but we have a great squad of women right now. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Next week, we will have Jim Walmsley, America's most famous runner now on the podcast. But we can finally turn to the shoe talk. I want good, to do a whole podcast on this. I'm so excited. After just praising, people think the white is pure. The good company, Hoka, Oni, Oni. Now we can talk the evil empire, Nike. I'm joking, people. People on the message board think that I hate Nike. I don't hate Nike. I just hate how they cheated on these shoes and are allowing to get it in 2016. It may cheat again in 2020. Wait. So, John. Really? That's what you think, Robert? I've never had that opinion from you before. Yes. Last week, John thought that there was nothing else that we could possibly talk about the shoes. But he let me talk about it at the end of the podcast. And it was a great segment. Then, either that day or a day later... It comes out that Nike's actually going to be allowed to use the Alpha Flies. 
that they conveniently are perfectly suited up for the new World Athletics rules. And John admitted, I said, John, you got to admit now, there's still a lot more we can talk about. And John agreed. John, so what has changed your mind? Last week you said this was nothing else to talk about. Now that you say there's plenty for us to talk about, was it the fact that the Alpha Flies are allowed, or was it perhaps Ross Tucker's new piece that's out in the Science of Sport blog? You tell me. It's the Alpha Flies, because we saw those shoes on Kipchoge, and I think most people thought, hey, there's no way in hell those meet the 40 millimeter stack requirement. And I think in some places they are probably taller than 40 millimeters, but not when they're being measured on a size 8 shoe from like the specific part that they're measured at. Nike probably, you know... You can speculate whether Nike knew that or not going in before the rules were announced. But I think I expect it. I'm like, oh, okay, Nike, they have these alpha flies, and now they have to do some work to adjust them to make sure their competition legal. And then for them to come out essentially a week later and say, hey, yeah, their competition legal. We're ready. We're going to roll them out. You know, all our athletes are going to have them at the trials. And I just look at them, and I'm just like, oh, they're pretty close to what Kipchoge wore in Vienna. And I just start... I just I worry him like if it's if they're as good as Nike is as the rumors are flying and Sean Engel of the Guardian has said that they could be a seven or eight percent running economy increase. I mean, do you just think of the advantage that the Vaporflies have had the last few years, the next percent, and tack on another three percentage points on there? I just get really worried that the integrity of the sport is at stake at the Olympic trials and the Olympics, and we're going to have the medals and the people making the team determined by the equipment, not by the runners. Yeah, I think John explained it, but I want to make sure we're sort of everybody clears and understands the picture. Nike had a media event last week in New York. Also, I found it curious. Let's Run never gets invited to these things. Do you think like, you think they'd want the, like? I think we're the second biggest running website in the United States at these things, but maybe because we're more critical, we don't we never get invited. But anyway, besides the point. And at this event, they said, "Hey, the Alpha Fly is coming out." And by the way, the shoe Kipchoge wore. For a sub two, they're claiming that was legal, and the week before when the rules came out that said no shoe going forward with more than a forty millimeter stack height would be legal. Everyone assumed I had not seen anyone said it's assumed that Kipchoge's shoe would not be legal, and so at the time everyone thought, okay, there's some compromise here. These rules aren't just going to cement a Nike advantage. They're going to Nike's going to have to dial things back. The other shoes, hopefully, can, companies can catch up and we'll have a level playing field. And instead, these rules. It just comes in that Nike shoe, allegedly, at least Nike's claiming this, there's been no outside independent verification of this, that they say Kipchoge's shoe, actually the one he ran in, would have come in at 39.5 millimeters. That's pretty damn convenient. So did these rules just sort of cemented the Nike's advantage, at least for this Olympic trials? Because also now there's a deadline here people can't catch up with. It's just sort of crazy. Um, speaking of crazy, there's a... Twitter person named Crazy Daisy. If you're out there, I want to talk to you. She's some sort of competitive runner. She knows a lot about the shoe stuff. She's always chimed in on this. She knows way more than me. And last week when I was in Paris, I'm like, what is Crazy Daisy saying about this? And Crazy Daisy, there's no tweets. She's deleted all of her tweets. They're gone. It's nuts. Like, I think she got so fed up. She's like, this is it. And just purged Twitter. I was wondering... Perhaps if she was an employee or something and they found out who she was and she was going to get sued or something like all the tweets are deleted. Like this is an expert. Please contact us. Email us. Let's run at let's run.com. Immediately. Crazy Daisy. We have to hear you. You have the inside scoop. So it's weird. We were, people were kind of okay with the rules because we thought the alpha lives would be banned, but 
then we, you know, we already knew that Shoya Kip said, she's like, this will be fine in a year or two, but it's not going to be fine now. These other shoe companies need to let people wear these other shoes. Well, we don't know that they're going to do that. And I don't know. It's just going to be very interesting to me what's going on here. I, to me, what made this a bigger story is I think people find it very convenient that Sebco used to work for Nike and all of a sudden now the new rules allow the new shoes. I'm not saying that there was sort of undue talking between them, but it's that's the problem with our sport. There's so many connections between everybody. And then I thought the Ross Tucker piece was very powerful. Now, Ross is paid by Adidas at times, but he's a sports scientist and his powerful piece is like, look, one of the problems with these shoes is different people respond very differently to these shoes. So some people get a 6% advantage, some people get a 0% advantage. So do we really want that in shoes? The issue I have is the money involved. What are we going to do about the college level? Everybody has to have a $250 pair of shoes. Now, I know these aren't good for track races, but imagine this was a spike. If this was a spike, if there was a $300 spike that is good for five races and it's 6% better than anything else, do you want to have every... So only the college teams that can afford that spike are going to be good? No, I don't think we want shoe being the key component of who wins the race. And that's what Russ Tucker said. Is that when the difference between shoes is greater than the difference between the average elites, then you've got a major problem. And that's the problem we have now. Now, Seb Coe has said, and I totally disagree with this, we can't go back on something that is already out there. I disagree. Of course you can go back. They went back on the swimsuits. They've gone back on golf equipment. This reminds me of Uber. Nike released the shoe without permission. They just came out, released it, and they think, oh, once people start using it, we're not going to go back. Uber just went into cities where it didn't have permits. Everyone started using it, and they oh, we can't go back. Yes, you can. Some cities have banned Uber. Robert, you're saying there isn't a spike. There are spikes. There's the Viperfly. There's the Nike Air Zoom Victory. I've heard the Viperfly could be 1% different which is like a tenth of a second in a hundred which is huge apparently it just really helps you finish the end of races better now again maybe we're just playing into the nike marketing hype here but there was also a lot of hype about the vapor flies when they came out in 2017 and it proved to be true i mean these shoes we, we've yet to see how much they'll change the game on the track but it's certainly possible that we, we could have a similar situation in the sprints and the middle distances and that was one of the things I said on the message board was, I think it's good to think of it in terms of spike. John's worried about a spike with 1%. We're talking about a shoe that's 3%, 4%, 6%, money economy, maybe 4% in terms of performance. I mean, that's a lot. The analogy I said was like, look, if you had a spike like this for middle distance, Ben True would be the best 5,000-meter runner in the world. He would go from 1302 to consistently 1245 and would be winning everything. Do we want that? Well, as a Dartmouth alum, I think some of us... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, yeah, it's a fair point. I think that one thing needs to be done, because I just am worried... I mean, the next percent seems better than the other shoe. And these the people are putting their head in the stand. It's like people are denying that global warming is occurring. Global warming has happened. The question is, like, how bad is it going to be and how much money do we need to spend to stop it? You know, to pretend that these shoes aren't an advantage is crazy. And we want a level playing field, and what can we do about it? So I think it sounds like it's pretty easy to test these shoes. So I, I think the, real quickly, the IWF needs to start testing all these shoes, but that'll be too late, right? Because if you sorry, the Olympic trials, anyone can, can run that. The four-month window, if the IWF tests these shoes and just decides they're just too much better than everything else, 
then I think maybe they would step in and ban them. But that won't help anyone who make, doesn't make an Olympic team because they don't have them. So there's a lot of questions to be asked. And I, I, I don't know, just sort of the way the news was presented and everyone was in agreement, alpha flies aren't going to be allowed. It's sort of just like, okay, at least something's being stopped here. We're trying to level the playing field. And it's like, oh, by the way, these made it in by 0.5 millimeters. And then I went and was trying to measure my wife's shoes compared to my shoes today and see how tall the stack height could be and you know see this stuff. Enforcing this rule is going to be hard. If you got to have a you know measure a size eight universal shoe and all this stuff. Yeah, you know, and some people say, well, Nike invented a great shoe. You can't stop. You can't stop progress. Well, you can if you want to. And they did make an amazing shoe. And I've said that, but to me, I don't understand how people don't acknowledge how is a four percent advantage in one person's shoe not an unfair assistance. Now, I guess you could say other people could go out and buy the shoe. And that's true. And I think that's on the other shoe companies. If they're going to allow this shoe, the other shoe companies need to let their athletes buy them. But, you know, to me, it's, or, or don't sign, people say don't sign with that, that company. What do you mean? Most people have three, four year contracts. They've already signed with the company. They're in college athletes. They have to just run in a certain pair of shoes. They can't just get out of these deals, you know. But, to me, you know, and Sepp Coe's like, oh, we can't move. How? People are so obsessed with drugs and you eat a, you eat a speck of tainted of beef in your band or your, your American record is nullified. I promise you, these shoes are worth more for Galen Rupps than any drug Alberto Salazar may or may not have given him. I mean, 4%? Are you kidding? What drug does that? This is crazy. And I don't understand how having... People are like, how is it unfair? How is having a piece of equipment that makes you 4% better than someone else that they can't wear not unfair? It is unfair. Oh, but I, I do have an apology. I did not... Do what I said I would do last week. I will do it today. I promise that I would write the IAAF and say, A, is this an acknowledgement that what happened in 2016 is wrong? That's what I want to do, number one. That's point number one. And point number two is I'm going to ask him the second question. How is having a piece of equipment that makes you 4% better than someone else unfair assistance? I guess you could say unfair assistance, not unfair assistance. Well, because we don't have the data back on the AlphaFly, Robert, and this is the question, is once we start getting these results and if they start testing the AlphaFly and scientifically showing these performance and efficiency gains, will Sebco and World Athletics come out and ban it? Because they said that, you know, they're going to still, they're conducting these studies and they're willing to revise their regulations as necessary. Well, a lot of people see the current regulations. They see that Nike just snuck under them and whether Nike had influence into them or not, people are going to say, this is favoring Nike. You know, you don't have the, the, you know, the guts to stand up to Nike and I think the question is going to be, if the Alpha Fly gets the performance results that people expect it to, will World Athletics take a stand and say, no, this is a bridge too far. We need to ban these shoes for the fairness of the sport. I mean, who knows if they will, but this other shoe has been out there for what now, three years, and it was shown to have an advantage, and they didn't do anything about it. So I'm not optimistic. I just wish that this new latest version had been limited because it seems like each version keeps getting better. That would have been at least some hope that one brand won't have an advantage. And everyone's like, Oh, the other brand should just catch up. Well, it's been three years and they haven't caught up. And there's some hope that, you know, everyone was sort of trying to rush out to try to be close by this Olympic trials. And, you know, at least the companies are dropping something by the Olympics, I guess then stuff will have to be out for four months in advance. And then an athlete could decide, well, I, I can violate the contract that, provides my livelihood and, and try to compete on a level playing field if they knew that something had an unfair, had a distinct advantage. But 
I think a lot of athletes aren't going to do that. And we could be looking at Olympic trials and Olympic marathon once again. Maybe we'll just have to cover the track events. But now you're saying it may go into spikes. But like, I, we don't want running to be about who has access to technology someone else doesn't have. And, th- and th- there's a lot of question marks now whether that's the case. I do think, though, there's an opportunity here. I guess the other shoe companies could let the athletes A, wear them. But moving forward in terms of marketing the sport, I've always wanted – I have some really creative ideas. I need to be a consultant for all these professional sports leagues. First of all, to people who say it's not an advantage – I promise you, if you put Kipchoge in a regular pair of flats from 2005 and have him run London, he doesn't win that race this year. Oh, you think so? That's what you think? Yes. This year? Of course. John, Kipchoge in regular shoe versus anyone in the better shoe that's at least 1% or 2% better, he gets creamed. Yeah, 2015 Berlin Marathon. We have evidence of this. He killed everyone in Berlin in 2015, and he was wearing a piece of floppy like cardboard shoes in that race. Yeah, I've had a pebble in my shoe too before. John, John, John. He was actually in a in a, a prototype shoe there for that race. It's come out that that shoe was a Nike Vaporfly prototype. I don't care. You're saying that gave him an advantage? No, it makes more sense advantage. that it, it makes more sense, right? Why was the insole flapping out? They gave him prototype shoe. It wasn't made properly, and it made sense that, that the you're ignoring the my point. You're ignoring out. my point. You're trying to argue that that shoe gave him an advantage. No, we're not. We're saying, no, but John, that, that field was pretty deep that year, pretty weak that year. It's not a London field. He's not racing the world's best at a shoe worse than everyone else. Yeah, if we're talking four percent worse, John. Yeah, when when things are level, he's better than everybody else significantly. But when he's four percent, he's not four percent better than them. That's point number one. But moving forward, how cool would it be? You know, I, I've said they should have a New York be rabbited one year and then no rabbits the next year, or rabbited once every four years. Spice it up. But how about having like London, old school London, like once every five years, old school flats. Then let's see how fast they run. So we can run the vapor yes. flats one year, yes. and then the next year you're not allowed to wear them. Now, hopefully somebody's still making the normal flats. That would be cool. Think outside the box. I, I, I'd love to see in the NBA where they would have, you know, or I'd love to see college basketball have one game a year where there's no shot clock, no three-pointers. Be cool. Be have a tournament. That'd be, be great. Horribly, horribly boring. It wouldn't. It'd be fascinating. It'd be different. You'd watch it. No, no, because it'd just be one team holding the ball once they go up to nothing. It'd be terrible. No, I actually I do want to see Kipchoge. I would love to see him show up in like an old pair of streaks and just wipe the floor with everyone in London because I think he. I, I unlike you, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I think he could still win. Oh yeah, and Bekele just didn't drop a two hundred one forty one because he was in like some crazy shoe. He just. Went from being like, you know, a 204, 203 guy to 201 just because he's getting older and hasn't run a healthy race in two years. Well, I mean, he went to the Netherlands and he sorted his diet out. There's a lot more that goes into running a 201 marathon than just the shoes. I, But I'm saying, yes, the shoes were a factor. I'm saying Kipchoge is so good, he could still beat a lot of those guys without the shoes and maybe all of them. You don't think the shoes might help you at the very minimum 30 seconds in a marathon? One minute? That's not even close. One minute is less than 1% in, in a two-hour race, John. Less than 1%. Now think about that. What At the Olympic marathon trials, what if we just start everyone up and we sh- shoot certain guys off and like, you guys start. Everyone else, you got to stay here a minute. A minute is less than 1%. People would be outraged. And essentially, because of the shoes people have on their feet, that's what's going to happen at these trials. Yeah, but in, in practice, are they always getting that benefit? I mean, 
Kipchoge doesn't make his move in some of these races until the last couple miles, and he still wins by like 30 seconds or whatever. So, I mean, he won by 18. All right, he won. So he won by 18 seconds in London last year. But like, could he have won by more if he just decides to run from hard from the like run as fast as he possibly can from the gun? I think he could. You know. I just can't believe you, you don't believe that he was in a shoe that puts him at a minute disadvantage or minute and a half that he would beat everybody. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. He has an advantage against, well, in the, vapor, the London Marathon this year, the top Nike athletes all had the next percent. So he didn't have an advantage there against the Nike athletes. But all right, yes, the shoe gives him an advantage. But I don't think that you can just say it's all, that's the only reason he's winning. And if he took him out, he wouldn't be winning anymore. This is bigger than just Kip Choga, guys. It's important for the sport to be continued. At this point, though, guys, it's on the shoe companies. If their athletes are complaining because they don't make the Olympic team, it's on them for holding them to an inferior pair of shoes. If you realize your equipment's not good enough, change the upper and, and hide it or paint over it and just don't talk about it. So we'll talk about this in the weeks to come. Enjoy the week. Enjoy USA's Hulahan versus Perrier. Team Willie Fink, let's go!